0: Grab your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 11, please. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to round this chapter out today. It's going to be fun. Hebrews eleven thirty-two 32 to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts, mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminder that life by faith can equal deliverance or life by faith can equal death. That the promise of faith It's not a promise that we will avoid pain and conflict and heartache, but it is a promise that all pain, all conflict, has a point, and it all points to you. It points to what you have done for us. It it points us to the place of remembering that it is by your wounds we can be healed. It is through the free gift of grace given by the Son of God hanging on a tree for me that I can come into a place where I can receive new life and the hope to get through this life. I pray no matter what brought us here this morning, whether it's just an invitation from family or it's looking for desperate hope in the midst of life's trials and circumstances, I pray that you would remove my words and that you would speak through me, that you would strengthen our faith as a church, that you would unite us as one, that you would make this a family united by the all-sustaining, all-cleansing, powerful blood of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Got a lot of ground to cover, and I want to walk through this with you. Today is going to be a little bit different as far as how we normally do, which is kind of word by word, verse by verse. The pastor kind of hits this giant summary right here as he's ending what is called the hall of faith. He's entered into all of chapter 11 of this book of Hebrews, explaining to this church who is getting ready to face opposition. They're getting ready to enter into this conflict where they can either remain comfortable or they could enter into crisis and hold on to their faith. And he's trying to encourage them, strengthen them up. He points backwards to their heroes. And then here at the end, he's going to point forward to the ultimate hero, Jesus. And what we're going to do hopefully in this passage today is get a baseline understanding of it, make some points that we can pull apart of it. And then encourage us to be people who have a faith that holds fast. So if you got your Bible, let's be the people who dive into it. 1132. As you know, this pastor who's writing to his church has just got through going and spending the entirety of this chapter listing out different heroes' names, Abrahams, the Moseses, the Joshuas, the Rahabs. He's mentioned all of these heroes of faith. And now he kind of gets to this place where he's starting to let it swirl down to the end. And he hits the crescendo of his message here and says, what more could I even say? I could spend all day listing off these people who by faith moved. And these people by faith saw God move on their behalf. He says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and all these prophets. He mentions these guys right here, and he's talking about the judges, and he it's David and Samuel, and he's talking about these kings, and the, the priests who, the prophets, who showed them where God is moving, and how God moves on their behalf. He's saying, I could go on and on about all of these heroes of faith, He mentions these people and he says, all of these guys who through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight and women received back their dead by resurrection. So the people sitting in the living room hearing this, remember, they're not hearing this at a church service with microphones and speakers and comfy chairs. They're sitting in a Middle Eastern living room hearing this pastor having been read, he's probably not in the room with them. This is a letter that they're getting. And more often than not, when they got these things, it would be written and read all in one sentence or all in one sitting. So they're in the place and he shows up and everybody sits down and they go, okay, well, what does pastor want to encourage us with today? And what he encourages them with is Hebrews chapter one all the way to chapter 12. So what we're getting to in 11, if the book of Hebrews is really more like a sermon to a church, in chapter 11, we're getting that closing crescendo. You know, if you grew up going to a church like this, this is when the pastor pulls out from his shirt pocket that, that handkerchief, and he starts, ha! Ah! Every word he says has got, ah! At the end of it, and he's starting to sweat a little bit. Like Then you can hear it even in what he's saying. They stop the mouths of lions. Ah, quench the power of fire. Ah. You're like, that's where he's at in the sermon. Okay? Like it's crescendoing. Now, what's crazy is you're sitting in the living room hearing this and like everybody's hype right now. They're like, no way. You're telling me that this Jesus would live and work through my life in such a way that by my faith in him, I would be one who would have heroic faith like these men. That I would be like a David, like a Daniel. That I would be like one of these guys who walks forward in faith in this manner that stands the test of the fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I would be one of these guys and the people in the living room and I can just imagine sitting there going, yeah, let's go. you get fired up. And then the back half of 35 starts and it says this. And some were tortured. And you're like, whoa, sudden change of events. Hard right turn. I thought... I thought we were about to do all this superhero, Jesus stuff. And now it says, "And some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. The verse goes on. It says, "They were stoned. They were sawn in two. It just goes bad from worse. They were killed with the sword." They went about in sheeps and goats sheep and goats and destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Which, again, we just got through going through this entire chapter with all these powerful deliverance moments, Red Sea parting, Jericho walls falling down. And then he references kind of in short order all of these other amazing things that God has delivered these people from. And then he starts leaning into this terrible stuff. He juxtaposes God's deliverance. And these people's lack of deliverance. And some of them, death. What is this pastor up to as he puts these two things together to show his church how to hold strong in the midst of what's going on in their own faith, in their own circumstances? He says, these people are going through these circumstances. And then in verse 39, he wraps up some of what this is really all about. He says, all of these. And when he talks about all of these, He's for sure talking about the people who faced the trials and the suffering and the persecution and were not delivered through them, but he's also talking about go all the way back to Abel at the very beginning of chapter 11 of Enoch and Abel and Abraham. He's going all the way back through all of those people saying everybody in this entire chapter, all of these though commended through their faith. God approved of their faith. He accepted the faith. God commended them through their faith, every single one of them, the ones who God delivered and the ones who died did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now here's where we get some clues to what in the world he's talking about. He's gonna make it very obvious in chapter 12, but we're not there yet, but he's gonna make it really obvious there. The clues to what he's saying and why he's explaining all of these people all your Old Testament heroes, your Davids and Abrahams and Joshua's and all these guys, all of those heroes who did amazing things and the one who by faith had terrible things happen to them. All of them did that by faith and none of them received what was really promised to them by God. But God provided for us something Better. Now this is where we got to go. When we read the word, we got to go, okay, well, what is this something better that we're actually talking about here? And I would even go a step further and go, it's not a something better. It's a someone better. If you have not missed, if you've missed this so far, the entire book of Hebrews has been about one simple point. Jesus is better. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the angels, he's better than your old sacrificial system, he's better than Moses, he's better than Abraham, he's better than Isaac, he's better than Jacob, he's better than everything and anyone you could ever expect. And all of those people, everything that happened in their life was all pointing to the something better that was to come in Jesus, and now we, as his church now, here in the present and into the future, we're all wrapped up in that together. So he's saying, all those Old Testament people that we know, that we love, that we want our kids to be on Halloween, all of those people, They were all pointing towards the culmination that is Jesus. Now, we, along with our brothers and sisters of faith in the past, collected with Jesus in the present, moving into the future. Now, we have been made perfect through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. That's what goes all the way back to Hebrews chapter 3. He became like us his brothers and having been made perfect, he gave his life on a cross that through death, he destroyed the one who has the power over death. That's what we preach about on Easter. He's coming all the way back around to this here now, that those people are made perfect now because of Jesus's perfect sacrifice. And we, this is what's awesome. This is how all the Hebrews 11, all those great names, and even the ones that just don't really even get mentioned, you know who is also in Hebrews 11? You, by faith, these two words represent me and they represent you. If you are in Christ, this grand story that this pastor weaves through all of chapter 11 also has you included. Now, if that's the truth, the big question is, <laughs> well, what part of chapter 11 am I gonna be part of? The part in the Red Sea, part of chapter 11, you know, the walls of Jericho falling down, shutting the mouths of lion. or am I going to be in the getting cut in half chapter 11 part? I don't know. Sometimes life feels like a little bit of both, right? And that's exactly what I think this whole chapter is about. The first point that I think you can make as you look at this collection of verses from about 35 to 42, the first point that you can make is that through God, and through our faith, God can and does work miracles, acts of providence, and he uses those miracles and acts of providence to deliver people out of pain and suffering. That's the first thing you can tell without a doubt. God works miraculous ways, providential ways to pull people out of suffering. And the second thing that you can clearly see here is that sometimes God does not always work miracles and acts of providence for deliverance from suffering. Here's the key. But sometimes he sustains his people through suffering. Sometimes God delivers out of suffering and then sometimes he delivers by faith through suffering. I know which one I'd rather be a part of. And I know you do too. I'd rather be out of suffering than going through suffering. But if it was as easy as me flipping on a light switch on or off with my suffering, I don't think I would have learned what I've learned I don't think my faith would be as strong as it is because everybody in this room would attest to some of the moments of suffering in your life or some of the very things that made your faith go deeper than you ever would have thought it could so what this means is having faith in God this is what you can learn from chapter 11 having faith in God does not guarantee that you won't face the worst this world has to offer I'll say that again some of you young in faith need to understand that having faith Faith in God does not guarantee that you will not face the worst that this world has to offer. If you got your Bible, I really want us to look at some stuff today. Remember, like my goal as a pastor is not to have a word for you from God, but to go to the word with you, to show you the word of God together. I want you to see what verse 39 says. Verse 39 says, through these and all these, commended through their faith which means every one of these people they gained approval for the faith that they had that's both the people who saw the red sea part and the people who were cut in part both of them gained approval from god because of their faith so what that means is suffering and hardships and pain is not a sign that god disapproves of you What it actually may mean, and this is not always the case because sometimes you may be suffering because you're making stupid decisions, but sometimes suffering actually means that you have God's approval, that you are walking by faith through the midst of suffering. It actually may mean that God is giving you special attention, that he is paying close attention to what's going on in your life and you are gaining more of his approval by the way you walk by faith through your suffering. And this this is not easy. Because this juxtaposition between good things happening and bad things happening is this messy middle ground that we all live in. And what this pastor is doing to his church is he's calling us all to live in that messy middle ground by faith. By faith that regardless of whether or not God delivers or I die in the midst of the suffering, I keep my faith, keep my trust, keep my hope in this God. So I want to point out a, A big difference here, so that you can see it. If you got your Bible, look at verse thirty-four. I think I can show it to you. Let's see. Let's do it all together. Shaboom! All right. Too far. Y'all, y'all doing? I don't know what happened there. I'm not caught up in your presence anymore. I'm moving on. Wow, man. I want to see verse 34. There it goes. All right. I got it from here. All right. He's talking about these people who did amazing things through faith. He says, through faith, conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of the fire. And then underline this, escaped the edge of the sword. Okay. So there's some people got out of the way of the sword by faith, God in His providence allowed them to escape the edge of the sword. A key figure who I would say is in here is the guy Elijah. Uh, Jezebel was like, "I'm going to kill Elijah. Uh, he killed my guys. I'm going to kill him." And then he books it, and by faith he has this like ultra marathon strength given by God, and he runs like hundreds of miles out into the middle of the wilderness. He escapes the edge of the sword, and that was God giving him that strength. Now, um, let's go to verse thirty-seven. they were stoned, sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. So in a collection of three verses, we have delivered from sword by faith, and by faith, killed with the sword. Same God, same faith. So what this has to mean to us is that my faith is not the determining factor as to whether good things happen to me or bad things happen to me. The determining factor whether or not good things happen to me or bad things happen to me looks like it's God. Which honestly should bring us some reprieve to know that I don't have to sit on a hospital bed at the end of my life with a body riddled full of cancer and go, if I would have just had more faith, this wouldn't happen to me. That's a hellacious thought to have. Or to sit in my mansion and go, oh, look at how much faith I had that brought all of this my way and give my faith credit where Jesus is owed it. Both are a damnable place to be. And both miss the point that God is the one who chooses and determines what happens. Now, some of you are going like, well, maybe that's just that a mean Old Testament God who allows stuff like that to happen. And that's just a thing. That's not really like my life experience. Most of the time I can experience, you know, and again, sometimes the karma and all this silly stuff of the world and new age stuff kind of slips into the church. And we think if, if I'm a good person, good things will happen to me. I'm trying to live my best life and I'm trying to do good so I can get good. You know, that's the way we put God in an equation. We hope to get the best things out of life. But really, when we really look at our lives, it wasn't like that in the early church. and It's not like that in this church now. When you go back to the early church, what you see is some crazy examples. If you go to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, James, who's the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus, but James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, he's one of Jesus's 12 apostles. He gets killed by Herod by a sword. At this point, Herod has already killed another guy who was rising up within the church, who was a great leader within this new movement that was spreading, a guy named Stephen. Stephen was stoned. James is cut in half. Herod sees how the Jewish people, the ones who were there in the crowd shouting, crucify, 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 that Jesus. This same little ragtag group of disciples are now becoming despised by all of the Jewish authority. The same Jewish authority that put Jesus on the cross, gave him the fake testimony, the fake trial that eventually led to his death. Now they're killing his followers. Herod sees how this is taking his approval ratings and sending them through the roof. And he goes, well, if I can take out James, I'm going to take out that loud mouth leader of the group. That guy they call Peter. And so Jane or Herod goes and gets Peter and gets Peter thrown in jail. And Peter's there in jail getting ready to get killed by the sword. And the same God who'd allowed James to be killed by the sword shows up in Peter's prison cell Blinds the guard with a miraculous light, breaks the shackles off of Peter's wrists and feet, unlocks the door, and Peter makes it out scot-free. And God essentially says, I've got 20 years left to work for you to do. Died by the sword, delivered by the sword. This is gonna be the juxtaposition of your life and my life. Moments and times where you feel like you've been delivered out of something and moments in time where you feel like I am just going through something that I cannot believe that I'm going through. And what I believe the pastor of the Church of Hebrews was doing was trying to help them understand the blessing that comes when we trust a God we cannot understand. Jesus had this uh, really gut-wrenching encounter with some of the disciples, not of his own disciples, he had plenty of those, but some of the disciples of his cousin, John, John the Baptist. If you've got a Bible, I want you to see this. If you can get this story, I believe you will have faith that can sustain you through nearly anything that will happen in this life. Really, I want you to see this and go here because I'm telling you, I've gone through some really um, unfortunate, painful times in my life and uh, I cannot take you to another passage that better has helped me through the things that I've gone through in my life, and, and probably even what I'll go through next. Matthew chapter 11. Let's go there together. I'll give you time to get there. If you, uh, and listen, I don't, if you don't ever look up anything I ever tell you to look up, please go here. Pull your phone out. Get off of Facebook or Instagram or whatever you're doing right now. And get on over there. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Y'all probably find it before I do. Matthew 11. All right, to set up what's going on here. Jesus has a cousin. His name is John the Baptist. Jesus says of this guy, John the Baptist, that there is no other human being on the face of the entire earth who is better, a greater man than this person. So what Jesus literally says about John the Baptist is there's Jesus, John the Baptist, and the rest of y'all. That's Jesus' take on his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was commissioned by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. He has a preaching itinerant ministry where he is baptizing people, calling people to repentance. He's out at the Jordan River baptizing people. Jesus gets led out to the Jordan River, hooks up with his brother John, or cousin John the Baptist, As Jesus is coming through that day, John stops what he's doing, says out loud so everybody can hear, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what John says of his cousin, Jesus. You don't say behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world if you don't believe that that man right there is the Messiah. He believes it. He declares it. John even baptizes Jesus and has this Holy Spirit Trinity moment where God opens up the heaven, sends the Holy Spirit down, kind of in this form of this dove, and says over the entire crowd, behold my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. John sees all of that. From that moment some of John's disciples leave and start following Jesus. Andrew is one we know for sure became one of his apostles. Some disciples, however, stayed back with John the Baptist and continued on with his mission. John continued during his time on earth to say things that ticked the people in charge off a lot. And he said some stuff that really, really got him in trouble. He called out the sexual sin that he saw in his leaders. He called it out. Said they were damned because of it. They were wicked because of it. And those leaders did not take kindly to that. They put him in prison. And then devised this wicked scheme to eventually have John the Baptist beheaded and his head served on a silver platter to those royal leaders. But while John is in prison... He's there, he's tucked in. And again, this is a guy who has spent his life as someone who took a Nazarite vow and he's lived out with the Essenes in the middle of the desert wilderness. This is a guy who never lived indoors. And now he's trapped in a dark, dank prison cell. Living on nothing, basically. And again, this is a guy who Jesus said, this is the greatest man ever put sandals on. And let's go to chapter 11. Let's see. All right, chapter 11, Matthew 11. When Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? All right, track with me what's going on here. Jesus is rock star level at this point. Everywhere he goes, he's preaching mind-blowing sermons. Everywhere he goes, he's healing people left and right. He is drawing crowds of thousands upon thousands everywhere he goes. John's disciples show up, and they tell John, man, this is some amazing stuff is happening right here. But again, put yourself in John in the prison cell. He's his cousin, he has done nothing with his life, but suffer and strive and face hardships for the glory of God. He lived in the desert, wore camel skins and ate bugs. He's the greatest man who ever lived. And what you see there in this chapter is this man who had once said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is clearly the Messiah. What is he now doing when he's in his prison cell? He's doubting. He says, essentially, are are you the Messiah, Jesus, or should we expect somebody else? Like I'm hearing all this crazy stuff happening for all these other people, and you can kind of read between the lines. I hear what you're doing for everybody else. You're setting people free from lame legs and raising folks from the dead and preaching great sermons. Meanwhile, I can preach. I'm here. Nobody's listening. I'm your cousin. I'm your blood. Help your brother out. John goes, are you the Messiah or should we expect something else? When you're in one of those dark places, doubt sneaks in, doesn't it? You can go from one mountaintop moment close to Jesus right there with him. This is the Messiah. He has taken away the sins of the world, mine included. I mean, John's the guy who said, I'm not even worthy to unstrap your sandals, let alone baptize you. And now he's going, you sure the Messiah? Like, or should I expect somebody else? Like, my time's running out. I'd at least like to know. Are you for real or not? Listen to what Jesus says back to him. And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and what? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, tell me the truth. Did John ask an incredibly simple question? Are you the Messiah or should we expect somebody else? What did Jesus not even give him? An answer. Jesus says, let me tell you what I've been doing. I've been healing blind folks. I've been cleansing lepers. I've been preaching good news to the poor. And then the key to all of this, the whole reason I'm taking you here today, and it connects exactly back with, it's no coincidence that Matthew 11 connects exactly to what's happening in Hebrews 11. The key is in verse six. If there was ever someone who deserved a straightforward, cut and dry, plain as day answer from Jesus... It was John the Baptist. Jesus tells him, here's what I've been doing. And then in verse six, he says, blessed is he who is not offended on account of me. Church, that is the hidden, and I believe maybe even the most important beatitude there is that blessed is he, blessed is she who is not offended on account of me. This was Jesus' way of saying to John the Baptist, and I believe his disciples are writing this stuff down to take it back to him. John, will you let me be a God who does not meet your expectations? I know you think you deserve an answer from me. I know you think you deserve justification. I know how much you've suffered. If there was ever anybody I wish I could give an answer to that was straightforward and outright, it would be you, John. But blessed is he who is not offended on account of me. So the question is, the question is not God, how could you allow this much suffering in the world? The question is not, God, how many miscarriages are you going to let me have? The question is not, God, why did you allow this marriage to end? God, why can't you take this addiction away from my child? God, why have my husband ran around on me? God, why am I still addicted to pornography? God, why are you allowing these terrible, horrible things to happen? God, why am I getting cutting to? God, why am I going roaming around in the desert with sheepskin? skin and goatskin skin on with no home. God, why am I stuck in this prison cell of depression and anger and grief and shame? The question is not any of those things. The one singular question is, will you trust a God who does not meet your expectations? Will you trust a God that you cannot understand? That's it. A trust in a God who can both Deliver some out of and deliver some by faith through and still be a good, good father God. And see church, when you, when you bump into someone with that kind of faith that says, Jesus, I will not be offended on account of you. I can't understand you. Really some of the stuff that gets us in the most trouble in life and in faith is our expectations of Jesus, and here's the deal, if Jesus meets all of your expectations, he can't exceed them. And so we look at this story, and if I had to put it in a, in a point, it's really hard to do it in just one little bitty point. I would say it like this, the common element of faith that is both delivered from pain and suffering. And again, that's a faith we all really want, right? The common element, though, of a faith that is both delivered from pain and suffering and faith that is stained through pain and suffering is that both consider God better than what life can give now and what death can take later. That is the key. And this is why this author, as he hits the crescendo of his sermon, makes everything about faith. Faith. And this is the faith that we see, is real faith. Real faith says if I've got it all, God is better. And Real Faith says, if I lose it all, God is better. And so what we've got to do is we've got to be people. And this is what he's trying to pound into the head of this fledgling Hebrew church. It's what I'm trying to pound into the head of McDonough Christian Church. If I have it all, I still have to say God is better. And if I have nothing at all, I still have to say God is better. Now the key here is, your best bet, friend, is learning to say God is better when you have it all. When you've got your health, when you can still play catch with your kids in the yard, when you can still make it up the stairs, when you've got a little bit of running money in your pocket, when your mind is still there. If you can't learn to say God is better than it all when you have it all, You will never be able to say God is better than it all when you have nothing at all. Because there's going to come that day when your health is going to waste away and no money could buy you another day. There's going to come moments in this life where you feel like you don't have anything. You don't have a friend. You don't have a family member. There's going to be moments in this life where you feel like you have nothing at all. And if you don't, listen, I'm talking to a room full of people who, for all intents and purposes, right now, if you live in America, you drove in a vehicle here, the rest of the world would look at you and go, Y'all have it all. I know you walked in with all the things that you got going on and the struggles and circumstances, but the rest of the world, by and large, would look at you and go, Y'all got it all. And if you don't learn, if we don't learn to say, God is better than all of it while we have all of it, if something happens, if things change and it starts getting taken away, this is what the pastor of the Hebrew church knew. He's looking around his church and he's going, for the most part, y'all got it all. But in a few few short years, this was written AD 70, church history shows us that in a few short years, Nero comes in and starts lining the roads out of Rome with burning crosses lined with Christians. And he knew, if I can't get these people right now in this living room to go, God is better than everything, then there's no way that they're gonna save and hold fast and be strong with their faith when Nero starts making them tiki torches to line Rome. He knows that. And we've gotta be people that know that. That this faith has got to far exceed our circumstances. And the, these people, man, this is, I believe, part of the point he's trying to make. These people, these rare diamonds in the rough people who can be going through hellacious circumstances here on earth, yet at the same time be praising God in the midst of it. He says these people are gifts to humanity. You've been around some of these folks. The people who you see cancer eating away their life. One dear saint of this church comes to mind who we watched, life waste away. But we could tell that that passage of scripture where Paul says, outwardly, my body is wasting away day by day, but inwardly, I am being renewed day by day. We watched that be true in the life of Peggy Martin. And she was a gift to be around. She's a gift to see because in that we saw a woman who trusted God despite her lack of healing. She trusted that God would deliver her through, even if he didn't deliver her out. And this passage, it, it says the world isn't even worthy of people like this. It's saying, these people are such a gift to the world that the world doesn't even deserve people like this who, despite whatever may be happening here down on this planet, refuse to curse the name of God and instead bless him all the more. These are the people who are gifts to us. And my prayer as I've gone through this and wept over this verse is that, God, would you make me a man like that? Would you allow me to bump in to as many men and women of God as I lead this church who have that faith, and would you allow it to be as contagious as possible so that I would be able to catch it and never get rid of it? And that's my prayer for you, that we would be a church that catches faith like that, that it becomes so contagious amongst us that it starts a wildfire movement of God saving souls in the city. And listen, that's literally what began to happen. You're going, well, man, how did this little group of a thousand or so believers in this, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus guy, how did that morph into us in a room like this? And and Christianity doing what it's done on the planet earth. Like how did it start from this group of 12 or so guys and a little ragtag group of outskirt disciples to you sitting in this room? Do you you, you ever just kind of look at the timeline of like how in the world does that happen? One, it's because... If somebody says that you can kill me and I'm gonna rise from the grave, they really are who they say they are. And those things happen. And two, it happened because of persecution. In the midst of Christians being beheaded, cut in half, set on fire, tarred and feathered, people saw something so contagious, so utterworldly, that they knew it was real. And so as I close I want to take you to someone who has far more credibility than I do in speaking about this dilemma between navigating pain and hardships to witness to a world that is lost and broken. There's a book that I was given a couple years ago by a member of our church called The Insanity of God. It's a book that it's kept me up. It's found its way to infiltrate my mind on car rides and dugouts and times when I should not be thinking about the stuff in this book. It just finds its way to worm into my heart, and I believe that's not because of the words on the page, but the work of the Holy Spirit. The book is written by a man who goes under the pseudonym of Bill Ripkin. Not his real name. The reason he does not write under his real name is because he is one of the foremost missionaries to Muslim countries. And if he were to write under his real name and describe the things that he described in his book, he would already be dead. But he writes these things that I have not been able to get out of my head and the heart. And I've been looking for the right time to be able to share them with you. And today is finally that day. To take what this pastor is talking about in Hebrews 11. And then talk to an American church who I believe is getting ready to face persecution like you haven't seen before. And to go, what do I do in the midst of it? The same way the Hebrew church was getting ready to face persecution like they had never seen before, I believe we are too. If there's anything that history teaches us about religious freedom, it is that it is fragile. And we live in a day and age where good is evil and evil is good. So you better make sure that you know who Jesus is and you have faith in him that can sustain through whatever comes. These are the words of the guy who goes by Bill Ripken. He says, before we can grasp the full meaning of the resurrection... We first have to witness or experience crucifixion. That's our faith. Crucifixion precedes resurrection. Death precedes life. If we spend our lives so afraid of suffering, so averse to sacrifice, that we avoid even the risk of persecution or crucifixion, then we might never discover the true wonder, joy, and power of a resurrection faith. This is the key key sentence here. Ironically, avoiding suffering could be the very thing that prevents us from partnering deeply with the risen Christ. Not most of us aren't like after pain, aren't after suffering, but he says, and again, you can feel free to argue with him all you want. This is not the word of God. This is not authority on your life. I do agree with this because it lines up with scripture and what I see in Jesus, but you don't have to take this as scripture. I'm just showing to you this to challenge your faith and let it be challenged the way it challenged mine. He goes on to say, suffering is one of God's ordained means for the growth of his church. He brought salvation to the world through Christ, our suffering savior. And he now spreads salvation in the world through Christians as suffering saints. In the words of Paul, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. He cites second Timothy there. Clearly, there is a sense in, clearly there is a sense in which the danger of our lives increases in proportion to the depths of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's, that was one of those ones that I was like, stick the knife in and turn it. Because see what he's doing here. He's making this correlation between the depth of our faith, faith and the danger we face. The more danger that you're facing in your faith is a direct indicator of the depth of your relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what that danger looks like for you. We live in a a, a pretty free country right now in regards to this. So the danger that you may face is an awkward conversation with a coworker. The danger you may face is not bending or caving to the wicked things that HR tells you to do and says, I'll go find a different job before I do that. I don't know what danger you may face, but I believe, I, I agree with this wholeheartedly, that the depth of my faith is in proportion to the danger that I'm willing to navigate through by faith in Jesus. He also says, one of the most accurate ways to detect the measure of the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. This was the early church. And the question is, is this gonna be the now church? Now, I think there is some opposition. and we pray against opposition. We pray against these things, but we don't primarily pray against opposition. We primarily pray that the church would move forward, that we would push back the gates of hell. And if oppression or if something comes against us, then we continue to move and we continue to walk. But the case of the matter is we can tell throughout the history of what is the local church, the Bride of Christ, that when she is pushed down hardest, she spreads the fastest. And this is the call now, this is the call by faith, not to just go, okay, well, I've read this heroic chapter and I've seen the the good and the bad and I'm gonna have this faith that now says, uh, Jesus, I will not be offended on account of you. I will trust that whatever you give me is either gonna be something you deliver me through or you deliver me out of. I'm gonna walk by faith in my little faith for you. If you've got that, you've got one half of the gospel because our call is not to just walk singularly, by faith. But by faith, we walk in a way that shares faith, spreads faith, that infiltrates the darkness in so many others' lives around us. Again, I think Mr. Ripkin nails it on the head here when he says these words. Sorry, we'll get there eventually. Those who number themselves among the followers of Jesus, but don't witness for him, are actually siding with the Taliban. The brutal regime that rules North Korea, the secret police in communist China, and the Somalis in Saudi Arabia of the world. Believers who do not share their faith, aid and abet Satan's ultimate goal of denying others access to Jesus, our silence makes us accomplices. I was listening to this book. I read it and then listened to it just because so much of it I could not get out of my mind. And I was I was driving down the interstate from the church to Strong Art Christian Academy where my boys go to school I'm going to pick them up on a Wednesday and I heard that line and I just had to Turn it off because it just just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm going to pick up my kids from this nice insulated Christian environment, and I I realize that my real enemy is lostness all around me. And I I realize that that I'm an accomplice to the dark side all the times when I stay silent. That I'm aiding and abetting. That I'm I'm all those opportunities that I have missed. Because of what? Because I was in a hurry. They didn't wanna risk something being awkward. Because I had an agenda, had things to do. There's no neutral ground in following Jesus. You're either all in or you're all out. He doesn't need fans. He doesn't need people cheering on his mission from the sidelines. He needs you to engage in this great mission. It is the fight against lostness. The Muslims are not our enemy. The Democrats are not our enemy. No political party is our enemy. Al Qaeda, Hamas is not our enemy. Our enemy is, hear me on this, sounds strange at first, Our enemy is not even primarily Satan. Our enemy is people remaining lost. Lostness is the great enemy. Nobody goes to hell because of Satan. Go to hell because they remained lost and never found Jesus. Far be it from us to be people who have found him and been found by him to let others remain lost. I refuse to let my life from this day forward be an accomplice to his mission. for the people all around us staying in the dark and I'm asking you to partner with me, to partner with this church, to be able to live this out, to say we will go where you call us. We will do what you tell us to do. Jesus, we come whatever may, come whatever happens, we are all in for what you lead us to and who you lead us to. My prayer is that we will be a church that shines bright, no matter how dark it gets. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you don't know his true gift of salvation, invite you now to accept Him as your Lord and Him as your Savior so that you'll be able to get through whatever life sends your way so that you'll be able to know that one day everything, every tear you cry, every darkness that you experience will eventually turn into joy, rejoicing as you are freed up not just from the penalty of sin through salvation but also the power of sin in your life right now and then eventually you'll be freed fully from the presence of sin as you enter into the new home and new family that He is bringing down from heaven here to earth for those of you who have salvation and you know this Jesus and you have been saved by your faith as you commune with him now, I pray the living life of Jesus inside of you is what inspires you now, maybe more than ever before, that come whatever may, you will allow the faith that he's put in you not to remain in you, but it will spread all around and that your life would be one that others look at and say, They were a gift that the world was not even worthy of because they see in your life someone who is living, not for this world, but the one that is to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this hope and this promise that we alone have in you. As we prepare to commune with you now and take of your poured out blood and your broken body, that it sinks deep into our soul that we realize that you are not a God who saved for the sake of avoiding suffering but you are a God who saved us through suffering